and welcome to the Fundamental Value Podcast, hosted by Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with leading analysts, traditional finance and digital asset firms, and investigate how leading minds in the cryptocurrency space, research, analyze, and quantify the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. Today, I'm super excited to be joined by Brian Crane, co-founder and CEO of Chorus One. Uh, Brian, it's great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. And so can we start, you know, you've, you've been in the crypto space for a while, but where were you before? What's your background and what, what drew you into the space? Yeah, so I'm from Switzerland originally. Uh, I got kind of interested in economics when I was a teenager. Uh, so I studied, I went to college in, in Chicago at the University of Chicago and studied economics there. And, and afterwards, was sort of like trying to figure out what to do. We got interested in startups a bit and technology. So I was like working on a startup in maybe 2010 and that failed. And then I was doing a master's degree after that. And sort of as I was finishing my master's degree in 2013, I was I learned about Bitcoin. And for me, Bitcoin kind of brought together a few of the interests I had. You know, one which was technology, another one was economics, game theory. I also was just really excited about this idea of having a financial system that's you know beyond the sort of the control of a particular nation state, the regulators of government, and, you know, the possibilities that can unleash in terms of freedom and innovation and progress. So I, I learned about Bitcoin then, and since then I've been working in the crypto space. So I haven't really had much of a career outside of crypto. I mean, I once spent like a summer in New York working for an investment bank as an intern and, you know, had this kind of failed startup, but it's, it's basically been all crypto for me. Yeah, and I think a lot of people within this space are actually in a in a similar boat, boat, myself included. You know, I started I started the tie, you know, about nine months out of graduating college. So uh, you know, been, been rolling for about five years since then, as we were, we were discussing before. But so, but but chorus one isn't your first foray in, into crypto. So while crypto is your first real career experience, chorus one isn't your first you know real real role within crypto. You actually were chief operating officer of Tendermint, and and anyone who doesn't know. Uh, that's really the firm uh, that was behind the launch of Cosmos. So, you know, you were there in its earliest days, you know, as part of its inception. So can you share what what that was kind of like? Uh, I believe you guys, when was your ICO? It was early 2017, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, kind of what that was like, what the fundraising experience was like at that time. And obviously you were there during the first, you know, absolute mania of digital yeah. assets being the 2017 bull market. Yeah, I mean, I... I had joined a company called uh, Ares Industries that later kind of renamed to Monax in 2015. And they were trying to do um, enterprise smart contract applications, you know, for banks and uh, enterprise customers. And they had forked Ethereum. And then they were like, okay, we should have some kind of different consensus because mining doesn't make sense. So what can we use? And then they kind of looked around and saw, is there anything? And the one thing that there was, was there was this thing called Tendermint. And Tendermint at the time was, you know, like one guy and a white paper and a bit of code. And in this company that I was working at, they had raised some venture capital money. They had, you know, a bit of a team. They were a better resource than this guy. So uh, Jay Kwon, uh, uh, who's the founder of Tendermint. So, you know, that company, Eris, started to contribute to Tendermint and working on it. So this was in my previous company already that I was kind of connected with Tendermint. Uh, before there was really any proof of stake chains that were live. And, you know, so I was working in this enterprise blockchain space for 2015, end of 2016. And I just felt it wasn't really moving because the issue is with the, all of these enterprise blockchain use cases, you have all of these different companies and they have to come to agreement to do something and they're all big and political and slow and they have to all coordinate and it just doesn't work. So that was my experience then. And uh, so, yeah, the, but then there was Tendermint and they had decided 
And so just um, for people who are not aware, Tenement is basically the kind of consensus engine. So it's the thing that uh, the, the kind of technology that allows the different participants uh, come to consensus uh, about, you know, what are the blocks and v verify the blocks and create valid blocks and kind of provides the security for, for a blockchain, for a proof of stake blockchain. So, yeah, so I joined those guys then. There was like three people, three, four people at the time. There was not much of an organization and it was, it was a bit of a chaotic, uh, chaotic thing. And then we were like, okay, we're going to do this, uh, token sale this fundraiser in, I think, April, 2017. And we, we built everything ourselves, the technology, right? So for people to donate Bitcoin or ether and tend to generate the key and keep the key. So there was actually quite a lot of like technical development that was going into that because it was not the ERC-20 or something like that, right? It was to launch your own blockchain. So it was more complicated than just um, uh, the kind of ERC-20 token sale on Ethereum. And I, it honestly, it was very hard to know, are people actually going to be interested? Is this token fundraiser going to succeed? Uh, at the time, there had been hardly any, you know, ICOs. And, uh, you know, I, I was more also doing a little bit of this community engagement, you know, answering questions, doing some web, you know, um, interview, you know, events and things like that. Uh, but then in the end, it's just uh, people did come right? because there was enough people who had heard about it and who were very uh, interested in it. And uh, it ended up, we ended up raising 17 million in like half an hour. And then basically this was a cap and then it was closed down. And it was very surprising, like how fast it went. We were all kind of like shocked. And this was the biggest fundraiser at the time in, in such a short time. It was, I think, slightly bigger than Ethereum. And, you know, in, in Ethereum had taken like two months to raise it. And we, we took like 30 minutes. But then, of course, within a month, you know, you started having all kinds of the IC. This was really just at the beginning of this uh, token sale ICO mania. When, you know, you had all of, for the people who weren't there, you know, you had crazy projects raising insane amounts of money in no time. And there was this rush to get into everything. And, and we were just at the cusp of that starting. I mean, it's, it's, it's really amazing when you look back. I mean, I don't know if you remember, I was, I was reminiscing about a token called Tata2. I don't know if you remember this, but they were trying to build a decentralized Netflix. Uh, they did an ICO in 2017 and raised $500 million. And no one's talking about them. They have no I, nothing, no yeah. product. <laughs> nothing. And, and they're not the only one. I mean, there are a number of projects that raised 30, 50, 100, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. And like, you look at any other venture market and there was nothing that matched that, right? I mean, EOS raising $4 billion pre-product, right? Like, uh, it, it really became became quite a wild time. But since that time, Cosmos has actually built a tremendous amount and has a tremendous amount of builders building on top of them. So obviously credit to the team. And so while you've you've left Tendermint full-time to start Chorus One, I believe you continue to work with the Interchain Foundation. So can you kind of talk about the ongoing work that you're doing, uh, your support of you know Cosmos and the ecosystem? And, and really for anyone listening who's not, you know, obviously Cosmos has become uh, you know, one of the largest, you know, uh, you know, projects within crypto, but I think it's, it, it is, it is significantly less discussed relative to the presence it actually has in the market, given that in many mm -hmm. cases it's behind the scenes. So can you kind of talk about why Cosmos, why it's important, why it's differentiated? Totally. I mean, I think first of all, it's important to realize sort of what is the, the, what was the vision of Cosmos and what was the world that the Cosmos you know, that we saw happening. And the vision here is really the idea that we will have many different blockchains. And the best way to secure those blockchains is through proof of stake. Uh, so that, you know, we'll have many different blockchains. They each will have their own staking token, their own validator set, be responsible for their own security. But of course, when you have many different blockchains, you will still want to do things that, you know, Cross different blockchains. You know, you have some assets that's being created on one blockchain, but you want to trade it on another blockchain, or you want to lend it on another blockchain, or maybe there's a DAO on one blockchain and it wants to hold the asset from another blockchain. So you have to have some kind of interoperability, some way for these blockchains to talk to each other. So this is really what Cosmos 
and so when you look at like what is what has been built there, I mean, one is this tenement, which is basically this fundamental engine that allows a validator set to secure a blockchain to produce the block that has uh, you know security mechanisms, and and so that's that's one thing. Another thing is this thing called Cosmos SDK. In Cosmos SDK, you can think of it a bit like WordPress for blockchains, where you know WordPress has made it like you know dramatically cheaper and easier to build a website, right? Because you can just take it and you have all of these plugins and it's open source, and you can just take that and you can modify it and you can launch something quickly. And Cosmos SDK is like that for blockchain, where you basically have all of these fundamental building blocks. Uh, and it's in this modularized way, so you can just take them, maybe change some parameters, or maybe you develop some of your own extensions, and then you can launch a blockchain. So Cosmos SDK has really made it super easy and cheap to create your own blockchain. And it's really the best way, if you want to create a blockchain, the easiest, most efficient way is to use the Cosmos SDK. And it has definitely you know, lowered the cost of creating a blockchain by like a 1,000x or something like that. And you know you can ha- developers can definitely you know launch a blockchain within a few hours or something like that with the Cosmos SDK, and that has had a lot of success. If you look at the top 100, right in like uh, coin market cap, uh, there is probably like at least 10 block, uh, that are run on the Cosmos SDK. Uh, you know, including things like you know Binance Chain uses Tendermint. You know, there's like crypto.com is built on the Cosmos SDK. There's the Cosmos Hub itself. So there's a lot of different blockchains that are leveraging this technology. And then the the third thing is IBC. And IBC is basically a protocol for how these blockchains can talk to each other. The analogy is often kind of like TCP IP, you know, where you have like these different computers and they have this messaging protocol and they can send messages and verify them. And that's kind of how IBC works, where the different blockchains can send packages to each other uh, and verify them. And the simplest thing is to just to send tokens from one chain to another chain. But uh, you know, people are working now on m- many more like powerful things, so to send da- arbitrary data between blockchains and do like really cool use cases. So today, the Cosmos, you know, the Cosmos. So the one of the reasons I think also why Cosmos maybe hasn't gotten like that much attention is because the attention is like scattered among many different chains that are kind of building on this cause on this technology, but they have their own name, their own branding. They don't necessarily mention Cosmos, and um, and and you have in a way many different little ecosystem that using some of the same technology, some are in probability, and there is kind of a larger Cosmos community as well. And yeah, it's, it's had a lot of success. I think today you have at least like 50, 60 blockchains that are live, that are you know like meaningful with real teams and use cases and user experiences and people staking. And and it's, it's, it's I would say of all of the block crypto ecosystem, in the last year, it's probably the one that has grown the most and has had the most, you know, traction and growth. So yeah, that's kind of the Cosmos ecosystem. Uh, and is the Adam token needed for like if you are Binance Smart Chain or any of these other developers? I, I mean, I know for example, there's a lot of talk of DYDX, obviously, yeah. you know, moving over. And so, what impact does that have on Adam? Like, do, do, do they actually need to stake a certain amount of Adam to spin up their own chain? So is there any, like, how does it actually interface with the token itself? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, uh, so in in the Cosmos model, there is no, you know, anyone can just take the Cosmos SDK, launch their own chain, have their own staking token, and you don't really need to do anything else, right? There's no, you don't need to buy any token. You don't need to lock up anything. You don't need to have atoms. You don't stake atoms. So there's really this aspect of sovereignty, you know, very different from Polkadot, for example, right? Where you have to tie in and you have to have dots. And uh, and so the idea of the Cosmos Hub, which is the, the first blockchain, and, you know, the kind of blockchain that was launched by, you know, the team I was at back then, was that the Cosmos Hub would sort of provide services to these other blockchains and uh, could be used in that way. And, and this is, you know, it's kind of, I mean, the Cosmos Hub is 
has some functionalities, but we still, we still, you know, I think there's still the work happening on like, what, what are these services? One thing where there is more like traction at the moment and a lot of development around it is a concept called interchain security. And that is actually this model of you can create a Cosmos blockchain if you don't want your own validator set and you don't want to have your own staking token, but you want to have the Cosmos hub secure it. And this is more of a special case, right? Because in, 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 really the Cosmos vision is that people have their own sovereign chains. But in some cases, people don't want that or projects don't want that. Uh, actually, one of the projects that is going to use interchain security is USDC. So they're going to issue USDC in Cosmos and they are going to do this on this kind of special blockchain that's secured also with the Atom token. Because, you know, Circle doesn't want to have a validator set. They don't want to have a staking token. They just want USDC to be on Cosmos and they want it to be secure. And how right? just, I mean, you mentioned there's 40 or 50 chains building on Cosmos. How decentralized are the validators on those different chains? I, I presume there's a, quite a big spectrum of decentralization. Yeah, so with, with Tendermint, you do, the validators have to communicate with each other. And if you have more validators, then it kind of slows down this communication a bit. So there is a bit of a, like, Generally, the Cosmos chains have between 100 and, you know, 200 validators. That's sort of typical. And then, of course, the decentralization has a lot to do with the distribution of the voting power, right? Like how, uh, you know, if you have a few validators that have, you know, 15%, it's not so decentralized, you know, but if, if it's pretty well distributed, then it's more decentralized. I would say, you know, how is it compared to, let's say, Ethereum? Uh, it's actually, and, and again, this is where it kind of, it gets like complicated when you talk about decentralization, because there's different ways of looking at it. If you look at it in, in terms of what are the number of entities that are running Ethereum validators versus running Cosmos, val Cosmos hub validators, well, there's definitely more entities running Ethereum validators, like way more. However, if you look at how many entities would you need to kind of collude to halt the network? then I think actually Cosmos Hub would have a, a larger number of entities. And, you know, you can kind of check it, right? So you have like, you know, Binance, Coinbase, you have a few of those that are running Cosmos Hub validators, but they have like a relatively small, you know, they have, we can just check, I can just check right now. You know, you basically have the cumulative share to get to, you know, 33% is seven. It's not huge, right? But if you look at uh, Ethereum, you know, you have some of the large like Kraken and Coinbase have really gigantic number of stake that's, that's staked through them. Um, and because in Cosmos, it really, you really make it very easy for anybody to launch their own validator. Uh, I think the much easier than to build like an Ethereum staking product that like an institution can use. So it depends how you look at it. Uh, and I think there's definitely debates around, you know, what's more decentralized. Practically speaking, you know, they have, I would say there haven't really been issues around it being too centralized, but, um, yeah, that's kind of the situation now. Yeah. Well, look, I think we could chat for an entire hour about Cosmos, but obviously you are now the co-founder and CEO of course one have been for over four years, I believe. So why don't we kind of move over, uh, and transition though, I might have to have you on again to, to teach us a little bit more about Cosmos, but why did you decide to move um, from a full-time role at Tendermint into building Chorus One? What was kind of the opportunity or problem or challenges that you saw in the space? Yeah, so I was working at uh, Tendermint, right? I started at, you know, the very start of 2017. I was there throughout 2017 as we were doing this uh, fundraiser and, you know, the team grew from when I joined, it was around five people to around 40 people through that year. And then I think there was, I mean, one is the Tendermint ended up being kind of a, a little bit of a organizational chaos. So it was hard to get productive in there. And they ended up splitting up in many different organizations. And it was just what was clear is that, you know, proof of stake is coming and it's going to be very important. And it's going to be the main way of securing blockchains because it's more efficient. It doesn't use energy. It doesn't use a lot of energy. It has better security properties. You can have better scalability, better speed, you know, faster blockchain block times, you can have better interoperability. So there's all of these benefits of uh, proof of stake. And it was, it was very clear that, you know, this is coming. 
and that this is going to be a tremendously important step to bring the blockchain ecosystem to the next stage of its evolution, where it can really serve, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of people around the world, you know, with all kinds of use cases and all kinds of different needs in different countries. And so, yeah, we just like saw that and wanted to work on that and wanted to, you know, enable that. And that's, that's how we kind of started to work on course one at the time, there was really nobody working on proof of stake infrastructure. Although at this, around the same time as we started, you know, you had other companies starting, you had uh, figment or P2P or, you know, soon after I would say staked and a few, a few of those companies uh, started Stakefish, uh, all started uh, around a similar time. And, uh, yeah. And since then it's become obviously a vibrant ecosystem. You know, you've had a huge amount of people who are staking a lot of, st- uh, you know, proof of stake has become the main way that blockchains are being secured. Almost all of the new proof, all of the new blockchains are being launched are using proof of stake. You've had with Ethereum, the second largest blockchain that switched from proof of work to proof of stake. You know, we've had a lot of innovation around proof of stake as well. And it's kind of maturing as an industry. It's giving it a chance for people to participate in the networks more actively, earn rewards, vote in governance. So, so it's really become a tremendously important part of uh, how blockchains work. And it's, you know, it's exciting to be a part of that. So you already very quickly and without even me prompting brought up a number of other staking uh, providers in the space, right? And and there there are there are some more that have emerged over the last few years. So how can a staking company and how does you know Chorus One specifically differentiate itself from its competitors, right? What are the services and products, right? Because I think, you know, from the outside looking in, I think a lot of people probably look at staking and thinking and think like, oh, you know, I, you know, maybe I want to you know, diversify the number of providers that I'm going with to diversify some level of, of risk, though I, I believe staking is non-custodial anyways. But what is it that enables Chorus One to be different from its competitors, right? If I was a hedge fund, and I w- you know, let's say I had $100 million in an asset and I wanted to, to stake it, why would I choose Chorus One over somebody else? Yeah, yeah, great question. So I would say we, uh, I mean, you definitely have differences between, you know, staking providers. So lots of different staking providers, but I think when it comes to, you know, meeting some institutional standards, like there is, you know, that's not a lot of staking providers who do that, you know, and that has a lot to do. So you do, you do certainly have risks, right? Like there are, they could, you could lose money, you could be slashed or you do want to ensure that there's a high uptime. So I think you do want to have a staking provider that has, you know, strong team that has good processes around key management, security, maybe third-party audits, things like that. So I think that's one thing when it comes to just like high performance of infrastructure, also the support of networks. So, you know, to try support like many different networks and to be also cutting edge when it comes to onboarding new networks. And then we are, you know, we also have a kind of institutional product in terms of the integration so that you can stake this is especially relevant with Ethereum because in Ethereum, you know, if you have like uh, 10,000 ETH, then you know, don't want to run one validator, but you need to basically for every 32 ETH, you need to boot up a new validator. So then you need to have an API that you can kind of build against that, you know, fulfills these requirements. So this is also something that we've built. And, you know, that allows, you know, good integration into different products. And so, yeah, those are some of the things I would say one area where we also pretty differentiated is, is around our research. So we have a, you know, large, you know, pretty significant research team, like super brilliant people and have very much been at the cutting edge of a variety of different topics around proof of stake. And, you know, we work quite closely also with our, you know, customers to help them understand, you know, what are changes that are coming, how does that impact them, how you have to think about that. And so this is also, yeah, one way that uh, I think can be interesting for customers to work together with. And so one of the things that you mentioned was being kind of ahead of the curve on, on listing uh, new chains uh, and, and adding staking support for, for multiple chains. So 
How many chains do you guys support now? And what is your process? What actually you know, provides an impetus or a spark for you guys to support a, a different chain? Is it a lot of the time, is it customers coming to you or are you trying to, you know, I know you also have a venture arm, so I presume that's part of the the equation as to, you know, you guys are probably seeing a lot of deal flow and, and, and new, new products emerging, but kind of curious as to, you know, one, how much support you have today and two, how you really think about adding support for another chain and how much work that actually is. Cause I don't think people know that. Yeah. So we, we have, we support around 40 different chains right now. Um, and in terms of how much work it is, it depends a lot. So it depends a lot on like the particular blockchain. So, you know, I talked right, about Cosmos. EVM chain, it's significantly less uh, difficult than supporting a, you know, a, a totally unique. Well, it depends know. because we are mostly on the sort of consensus level right and the evm is on the kind of application smart contract level right, right? so we care say especially around the pro of like how does how does the validation work how do the keys work how does the signing work and this is actually also one aspect where cosmos is very interesting because cosmos is like standardized around how that works between the different chains it makes the onboarding of a new cosmos chain like dramatically easier you know sometimes when you have like some very different new chain it could be you know like two months of someone's time to like or you know it could be a substantial amount of time but then when it's cosmos it could be like you know within hours potentially you can like onboard a new chain if they don't do too many you know too many unusual things yeah so now in terms of how do we go about onboarding chains and how do we decide that? You know, there's different things. There's definitely the question of like, okay, we may have clients who are, you know, have a particular asset and they want uh, this chain to be supported. So that's one thing. We are also with research, we're just researching, okay, what are interesting new proof of stake chains? You know, we speak with the teams. We try to do like technical due diligence, understand the use case, the business case, understand like, you know, do we think this has a like, good prospect or not? and then make decisions based on that to, uh, you know, to onboard networks. And, you know, you mentioned ventures. So yeah, we do have a ventures arm where we invest in, in things. And, and especially what we've been investing in the most is proof of stake networks. So when, when we see interesting networks, right, that we think are really promising, uh, along with onboarding them as a validator, we have often also invested in them. And this is also something where we often partner with our clients with, you know, where we kind of help them with deal flow and, and share research about uh, proof of shake chain or, or like, they're like, Hey, what do you think of this project? Can you look at this? And, you know, we can kind of share our perspective as someone, you know, who's like very deeply into the infrastructure of these different chains and has a lot of experience in this. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, and then we have, we have this kind of process that we, yeah. So from an investor perspective, right, you guys, it's all proprietary capital, I presume, right? It's all balance sheet that you're investing. Yes, Have you ever yeah. actually exited a position? What actually, like, you know, given that you're just investing company balance sheet, right? What, what, when we could talk about it later in terms of how you think about investing and how you get into it, but I'm curious as to, you know, as you're going and supporting these layer ones, um, and I'm sure there's other investments that you made, have you ever actually exited one? I mean, I, I don't think we have like fully exited anything, but you know, of the things that we have invested, there's definitely a bunch that are like liquid. And, you know, I mean, for example, we were an investor in uh, Lido, mm -hmm. like in the seed, you know, seed round. And we were one of the initial kind of uh, entities that one of the five validators that, you know, originally launched Lido. And, you know, so for example, Lido has been liquid for a while and, you know, we've we still hold a lot of Lido, right? And most most of the Lido we have, but now you know we sold some of it. So and and I think yeah. that's uh, you know we've done that with with a few assets, but most yeah mostly we still uh, I would say hold, hold most of our portfolio certainly. Right, and so we'll we'll get into investing. So I have a lot of questions there, but back to kind of the the, the staking point. So what are the different ways an individual or fund can actually stake assets and, and, you know, what are the benefits and drawbacks of those different ways? Yeah, I would say it, uh, it depends on the network as well, but probably there's like three, you know, three typical ways that are 
So one is delegation. Uh, so delegation basically means, you know, let's say we have like a course one validator running and the, our customer can, for example, go in the interface and their custodian and they have to just make a transaction that says I'm delegating these tokens or I'm staking these tokens. And then they have to choose a validator. And then basically that means that these tokens get sort of a, like added to our stake and to our voting power. And it means we produce more blocks and then the, the network directly uh, issues more rewards. And, uh, and then we take some commission, which is directly done on the network uh, level and the, the investor then accrues the rewards. So this is like one way that it doesn't work in all the blockchains like that. For example, Ethereum doesn't work like that, but all of the Cosmos blockchains work like that. And most of the proof of stake blockchains, you know, have that capability. So I would say delegation is sort of the, the standard way of delegating. This is certainly the main way that uh, retail investors delegate, but also for institutional investors. You know, I would say very often this is the way, uh, the easiest and simplest way to to delegate. Uh, and, and we can also have potentially, you know, some kind of agreements with some investors to, like, you know, provide additional services or uh, around that. So this is one way. Another way is that we would run a white label validator. So that would basically be that, uh, you know, you have a customer and they have a large, they would need to have a more substantial amount of stake for this to make sense. But they say they want to have a validator that's running with their name and branding on it. And then we would basically, you know, create the validator just for, just for them. Uh, they could also choose some of their own parameters. So, and, and you could also have other people then maybe delegating to that validator and they could maybe earn additional revenues from those delegations. And uh, yeah, and so that can, that can be another way. Uh, you know, we are, we are doing that with like, you know, various different, uh, various different partners. Uh, you know, one that's, for example, public is there's, you know, zero knowledge validator, which is I think the fifth largest on Cosmos right now. So they are, uh, you know, really outstanding team. They do a lot of research around zero knowledge and governance and things like that. But when it comes to the operation of the infrastructure, you know, they've kind of like partnered with us to do that for them. And so, you know, but it's, you know, they can choose. Um, and, and I presume that like, another potential partner would be like an exchange or a prime broker or somebody in the space yeah. that wants basically services to clients. Exactly, exactly. We also have like, you know, custodian that we, we do this with. So yeah, it could be like, uh, it, it, I think different kinds of institutions, this can be very interesting, especially also interesting because from a branding perspective, because a lot of people look at these lists of validators and, and especially if you can, let's say, get into the top 20 or something like that, top 25, and then people will just see your brand, right? And I think that can be, can be pretty powerful. So yeah, that's another one. And then there can be, in a way, maybe let me come back to Ethereum in a second. Another way is liquid staking. So liquid staking basically means that you are putting your coins into some pool and uh, this pool then stakes, the, stakes those coins. And when you put the coins into the pool, you're getting back another token. And this token then kind of accrues the staking rewards. There's, you know, either it just increases in balance, you know, so they just uh, add more coins or it could also be something that you know, you getting like some token that's redeemable for, let's say atoms, as an example, you're staking atoms and you're getting like Q atoms. And in the beginning, you put in one atom, you get one Q atom, but then after a year, you could redeem the Q atom and you get, you know, 1.1 atom. So this is uh, another way of staking. The advantage of it, there can be different advantages of this. You know, one advantage of it is liquidity. So, well, I, th I think the biggest advantage, maybe let's start with the biggest advantage. Biggest advantage is normally when you're staking, your capital is like locked up and you can't use it for other things. But let's say you want to use it 
because you want to use it as collateral to borrow against it, then it doesn't really work in the normal staking model. But with liquid staking, because you're getting back another token, you could use that token then as collateral and borrow against it. So this is one uh, advantage of this. Another one is that often when you're staking, if you want to stop staking, you have to go through some unbonding period. Basically, there's a delay uh, and you have to wait for a while before you get your token back and you can transfer it. And this delay depends on the network. It could be two weeks or three weeks. Uh, some networks it's longer and some it's shorter. It depends a lot. But with liquid staking, because you have this token that represents your staked assets, you could just transfer the token immediately and you don't have this kind of onboarding period. But I presume uh, you have risks of... Is liquid staking always custodial? Because I remember a few years ago, StakeHound, I'm sure you remember, right? They 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 were offering, I believe, liquid staking. You know, they were offering like STETH and then they lost the lost the private keys to their wallet. And then, you know, no one could actually withdraw the underlying asset. Yeah, yeah. This wasn't STETH. It was like, I don't know what they called. Their whatever, thing. The, whatever the staked asset was. I don't think ETH, ETH. I don't think ETH staking was live yet, but whatever, whatever it was, no, it was it was ETH. It was ETH staking. Was yeah, ETH, yeah. I, I'm familiar yeah. with the story a little bit. No, norm, yeah. normally, basically, you it's not custodial, right? Normally, you have uh, a smart contract system that uh, kind of manages the the tokens. So I mentioned Lido before. Of course, Lido is by far the most successful liquid staking protocol. Uh, I think at the moment on Ethereum, they also call it STETH as well. By the way, they I also call it STETH. Okay, yeah. so yeah, yeah, because Lido's <laughs> token is STETH, uh, which is staked ETH, and yeah. and right now around thirty percent of the ETH that's being staked is staked through Lido. So it's a huge percentage. It's also the largest uh, DeFi asset by TVL now. As yeah, of like it, years ago. Yeah. Exactly. And of course, maybe it's worth explaining also why liquid staking is really massive on Ethereum, much more than other proof of stake chains. And this has a lot to do with the way that proof of stake was designed on Ethereum. Because in Ethereum, when you're staking, uh, they haven't enabled withdrawals yet. So if you're staking in the normal way, you have to wait for withdrawals. Now withdrawals are coming up in March, I think this is the expectation. So that's not so bad, you know, two months or something. Of course, it could be longer. But, you know, people started staking ETH like two years ago. And uh, and then basically, you know, you have to wait two years before you get your, you have an ability to get your ETH back. It's pretty unattractive, right? So Lido was able to uh, get around this issue. And because, you know, in Ethereum, you have to have 32 ETH to build up a validator. What if you have less? So there's a whole bunch of uh, these things that LIDO was basically able to solve better by putting a smart contract in between. And then you have, uh, in the LIDO case, you have a governance token, LDO, which is used to vote on parameters and on other changes. And that's really kind of responsible for administrating the system. So it is also a decentralized, non-custodial system. Although, of course, there are there can also be custodial uh, liquid staking system. I think Coinbase has launched one. Right, there's a CBEF, so the Coinbase ETH, which is a, a liquid staking token that Coinbase has launched, which I think is a custodial one. It's got the longest name, isn't it? Coinbase Wrap Staked ETH or something like that. It's like yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we talked about some of the, I guess, risks associated with liquid staking. What are the risks associated with staking? I mean, I you mentioned slashing. Can you kind of explain what slashing actually is and what that means. And, you know, if somebody is non-custodial, you know, is staking an asset in a non-custodial manner, what are the associated risks? You know, you mentioned downtime and slashing, but can you kind of explain a little bit further what, what those risks actually mean? Yeah, so the, the fundamental, the, the, the direct staking related risk is, first of all, it is slashing would mean that the validator signs a transaction or signs different blocks that the network interprets as, you know, if a lot of validators did this thing, the network would start running into problems. 
uh, or it could be, it could be, for example, be an attack. Let's say somebody wanted to attack Ethereum, then they validator could do this kind of thing. So the network has some rules to say, oh, if we see this kind of behavior, we're going to punish you. And, and then you could basically lose some of the ETH or some of the tokens that you're staking. Now in practice, whenever this has happened, this has happened a few times, right? That people got slashed. It wasn't because they were trying to attack Ethereum. It's because they made some mistake in their setup and they messed something up. Uh, so I think that's much more likely, right? But this can happen. And then you could lose some of the top coins, you know, in Ethereum, it can be quite a lot. I think it could be up to like everything. Uh, theoretically, or, you know, it could be a substantial percentage in Cosmos, for example, it can be up to 5% other, you know, Solana, for example, has talked about introducing slashing, but they don't have it right now. So like that possibility doesn't exist. And so when somebody is slashed, the assets are just distributed to other stakers. No, it depends. No, they can just be burned. Okay. Yeah. So they could just be like the protocol, like wipes it away, wipes it out. So yeah, so you have slashing. Now I would say the following proof of stake is now, you know, live for four years, almost three and a half years. And there has been, if you take like the amount of capital that's being staked and the amount that has been slashed in total, it is a very, very, very tiny percentage. Uh, so I think de facto, this risk is not a large risk. And I think, especially if you're working with like, you know, reputable, good staking provider, I think this is like, you know, a very small risk. Another one is, uh, that, you know, networks basically say, Hey, we want to have a high uptime of values. We want them to be like live signing blocks all the time. And if they don't have that value that goes down for a while, then they could basically decrease their rewards. So this isn't, you know, you're not exactly losing money. I mean, you kind of are because you're not making money that you could have earned otherwise. But so this is also one thing that, um, that networks use to, you know, make sure that rallies have a high uptime. I mean, a biggest, the biggest risk in a way, uh, which is of course a sort of obvious one is that when you're staking, you're exposed to the price fluctuation of the staking asset. So, you know, if you're bullish on Cosmos, like Atoms or on Sol or on Eve, it makes a lot of sense to stake, you know, because you're just getting like 5% or 10% or something in it, you know, on top of the coins you already have. But of course you are exposed to that asset price. And if the asset goes down by like, you know, 80%, then yeah, okay. You made 10% on the staking rewards, but like you're still down, you know, a huge percentage. Well, I, pre um, I presume a lot of staking then is locked venture capital uh, money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would say for the, to the, the vast majority is long-term investors in a particular network, you know, holding these tokens and they want to have, you know, the additional yield, the additional appreciation from the staking asset. Um, so when somebody is staking assets, right. One of the natural questions is governance. And I know that's something that Chorus One has been very active in. So, you know, how do you guys think about, right, when you're when you're staking, right? I think that, that means that the the vote has been or you have the power over the vote theoretically if you wanted to, right? You could you could make a vote on behalf of the, the funds or the individuals that have staked their assets. But how do you actually go about that? How do you go about governance? Do you enable the clients that are staking with you to, to vote themselves? Are you making an aggregated vote? Are you, how does it actually work? Yeah. Yeah. So it again, depends a lot on the network. So if you look at some networks, they don't have some on-chain governance mechanism. So Ethereum, for example, there is no on-chain governance. Nobody's voting on any proposal. So there's really no connection between the staking and governance system. Uh, Solana, same way, there's no on-chain governance. So like, you're not really participating in Cosmos. On the other hand, you do have on-chain governance, which means that people can make proposals. Anybody can kind of make a proposal and then to people who are staking or, or everyone who's staking can vote on these proposals with their tokens. And these proposals could be different things. You know, there could be something like, Hey, we want this, this changes to the protocol. We want to have a different roadmap. You know, we want to change some parameters. Maybe we want to increase the inflation, decrease the inflation. 
Sometimes they have community pools. So they say like, hey, we want to fund this thing or invest in something. Uh, so, the, you know, there's a lot of different stuff. And so basically all of the Cosmos networks work like that. And then when you have other networks, it depends a little bit, uh, you know, whether they have governance and how it works. But I, let me just explain on the Cosmos networks how it works, because I think that's the one where actually there's the most governance going on. Uh, in Cosmos, the way it works is that every staking account can vote directly on all of the proposals. But if they don't vote, then their vote gets voted in the same way as their validator that they're staking with. So, so basically you have this ability, it's kind of like this, uh, I think this is where no liquid democracy, or it's basically where anyone can, can vote directly, can vote on their own. But uh, as long as the validators vote, for example, then you know, all of these tokens vote in a certain way. Uh, so if, from that perspective, yeah, people can absolutely vote directly. And actually a lot of people are doing it. So to give an example, in Cosmos, you know, you had uh, recently this Atom 2.0 proposal, which was like a huge debate around it. But so you, you, you typically have, you know, 80,000 accounts or more that are voting in these votes. So like a lot, right? Uh, a really an huge account is a, wall, is a wallet address or what is, yeah. what is an account? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's a lot of participation. And then, and yeah, we, we also vote and, you know, we, we basically just do some research, you know, we maybe have some internal debate. It depends a little bit on how complex the issue is. We cast a vote in some way. Uh, we also share a little bit about our rationale, why we voted this way. And then as, as investors, right, if you're like, um, an institutional investor holding some token, first of all, you don't have to vote, right? You can say, Hey, other people vote. If you, for example, want votes to happen you can vote directly yourself if you want to uh or you could say i'm i'm trusting sort of the validator that i'm staking with i think they're going to do it in a good way or you could have a discussion with us about it uh so there's kind of different ways of, of how it works but uh, i would say especially retail investors are like very engaged in this and often like like discussing it and i think institutional investors so far are tend to not be that engaged in these um on-chain governance discussions and votes, but but the ability to do so is, is there. Uh, I guess one question is here, whether the custodian that you're using is supporting the governance participation, right? And I think that depends on the particular custodian because in the end, they have to sign a transaction, you know, a specific transaction to vote and maybe they have to support it in their user interface in some way. And of course, that's a little bit of like development and integration work. And that if that's not there, then that may be a reason why you can't participate. Although even then, if as long as you're staking with a validator who votes, your vote, your coins, your tokens will still end up voting, even if you're not directly doing it yourself. And so moving on from 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 governance, one of the things that I think you guys offer, and I think a few others might as well, is this idea of MEV boosted staking rewards. So when you're staking, basically using MEV to actually accrue uh, accrue additional yield beyond just what the, the staking reward provided by the network is. Can you speak a little bit as to how that works and what are the additional types of returns that can be generated using using MEV? And are they, is it all custom MEV that you're, you're using or using something that's more open source? Yeah, so basically what MEV is, is that if you're the validator, you and and at some point you're you are the one who's creating a block, and that means you're basically putting the transactions into the block, and others, as long as the transactions are valid, will approve your block. And now let's say there is an arbitrage opportunity where you have two different decentralized exchanges on this chain, and they're trading the same asset at a different price. Then you know somebody can go in and you know sell it high and buy it low and they can make some money. And this is an obvious opportunity. Anybody could sort of like do it. So the question is then, you know, who does that? And of course, as the validator, you are in a way in this privileged position that, you know, you, cause you can decide what transactions going to block. You can really, you know, do that in a way that nobody else can. So that's kind of MEV and has 
of course, be, been a huge area of you know research, innovation, work, and you know we have been very deeply involved in this as well. At the moment, where MEV is really the most, the furthest ahead by a long margin is Ethereum. In Ethereum, you have a team called Flashbots that has created a special software that uh, a validator can run, and in that software, you are basically auctioning off. At the sort of the ability to put transactions into the block. So that means that, uh, you know, somebody else, uh, not the validator, but some other party can go and look at all of these transactions. They see, oh, there's this arbitrage opportunity. I want to, I want to be the one putting that transaction in. And then they're bidding for that. And if they're bidding the most, then they get to do it. And then this, this amount that they're paying for the bidding, this is basically extra reward that will go to the validator and thus will go to the stakers. So, you know, we are running uh, flashbots uh, on, on the Ethereum validators we are using. Flashbots, you can also have different relayers, which are basically people collecting these transactions from different parties that are kind of like assessing that. So, you know, we've also tested a variety of different relayers and, you know, trying to see like, how do they compare in terms of returns? So at the moment, you know, on Ethereum, you can definitely earn additional staking rewards uh, or additional rewards from MEV. I mean, this changes quite a lot. I don't know exactly what at the moment the figure is, but I think it's maybe like something like a 10% increase in the staking rewards. Uh, and I think this is something that has, has been higher at the past, right? I think at some points in proof of work still, because this existed already in proof of work flashbots, it was actually very high. So it fl will fluctuate a lot. You know, when there's maybe a lot of market volatility, the revenues from that will go high. Whereas with staking, you know, it's extremely stable. So that's the situation on Ethereum. On other blockchains, uh, it's much earlier, and I would say the MEV returns or the, the money generated from MEV right now is is small small to minimal. However, you know, you do have different teams that are starting to build, you know, software that can be used by validators. And, you know, we've been pretty deeply involved in this and, you know, uh, developing some things ourselves in, you know, running other things, you know, super early on, giving feedback. You know, for example, we're working very closely with a team called Skip, which is the leading MEV uh, team in the Cosmos ecosystem. And, you know, they are, they, for example, partner with Osmosis, which is this exchange in Cosmos to like do MEV there. And they're also working for other chains. And so we are, you know, we're doing quite a lot of like data-driven research. We're doing some development, you know, we're consulting with some of the MEV protocols in terms of how to approach it. We have a lot of conversations with our customers and with investors about, you know, where's MEV going? How should I think about it? Like, what's the impact going to be? How could I like position myself? So this is an area of like huge interest for people. And cause it is clear, it's gonna, it's gonna be an area of it's, or it is an area of like a very important area of like huge significance. And there's going to be innovation and work around this for many years. And, um, but I think in terms of like at, at the moment today, in terms of actually boosting returns, I think it's really on Ethereum where that's happening. But I think within the next year, we can expect that this is going to start to happen on other chains as well. And, and it will be an opportunity to you know, increase your returns. So my last question on staking, and then I know, you know we're running long times. So maybe we'll go speed around for the next five minutes to just you know, finish things up. But my, my last question I have on staking is, how do you as a staking provider hedge your risk? Right, because naturally your revenue is predicated. You talked about it earlier. One of the biggest risks of staking is that the underlying asset drops by ninety percent, which we've seen many instances. Which presumably means that you know, as a staking provider, your your revenue also drops quite significantly. Right, so you're, you, it, it is very, I wouldn't say transactional, but it's similar to an exchange where at, where revenues are you know just like we've seen with Coinbase, which is a public company where we can actually see you know data. Right can be significantly um, impacted by asset prices. So how do you actually go about preparing for downturns and, and hedging your risk and, and building a team? Because, you know, for me, like we're a SaaS revenue business, right? And I, for the most part, 
can try to predict my revenue going forward, but presumably for a staking provider, right, you kind of have to have some sort of thesis on where the market's going as well. Yeah, that's a great point. So yeah, you're totally right that uh, because our revenues are all in tokens and if the tokens go down in, you know, almost all in tokens, if the token asset price goes down by, you know, 80%, our revenues go down by 80% as well, right? So we are very exposed to the markets which of course can be great when it's all going up, right? And I think from like 2020 to 2021, you know, revenues went up by like 100x or something. But then of course it, it goes down on the other side as well when you have like a bear market like this. So, I mean, we like we have been, as a company, we've been pretty uh, simple here in just like, you know, liquidating for stable coins and fiat sort of to ensure we have enough runway that we can, you know, fund our team and grow a team and that, you know, we're like a, a little bit less exposed. That being said, we have also spoken with various teams and we have looked at some solutions that, you know, are, are doing more sophisticated things, right? Where you could basically, you know, say like, let's say we could pre-sell uh, future staking rewards and sort of like, you know, lock in, lock in the price. So this is something that we, we've, we've evaluated a few solutions and there are some companies that are, have been working on products like that. Unfortunately, those are all, you, you know, kind of came in the last months and they're, they're very immature, I think, and novel. But I definitely think in the next market cycle, this, this ability is going to be there much more. And I think that could also start being very interesting for, you know, not just for a staking provider, but for like a normal uh, institutional investor as well. We have actually been assessing the idea of having some kind of like hedged stake ETH product where, you know, you would basically, you know, put some money in, buy ETH, stake the ETH, and then, you know, with the staking rewards, buy some downside protection on like the principal value that you could basically have some kind of risk-free uh, return. So we've been assessing that. Actually, if people are really interested in this, like we've been sort of exploring, like how could you create a product like that? Uh, they should uh, feel free to reach out. And, and I think products like this uh, will be able to be, or, you know, one can create products like this, uh, certainly in the next years and the next market cycle. And I think that that will give some very interesting opportunities for having really like risk minimized uh, returns through staking. So a couple final questions and let's go through them, you know, pretty quick. So, you know, we, we've, we briefly touched on Chorus One, you know, ventures arm. So why, why was that created and is that purely strategic or are you guys financial investors as well? And, you know, what are you kind of looking for in opportunities? You know, we work very closely with a lot of different crypto projects and just the ability to invest in high quality projects is great. And it allows us to partner with them more closely and learn more about them. And of course, definitely we want to make uh, investment returns as well. And so that's kind of, and, and when we, you know, run infrastructure for projects, it just uh, makes a lot of sense that we have some exposure to the underlying asset as well. So that's why we decided to do this. So, you know, this is the fundamental value podcast. So one question that we ask all of our guests is around fundamentals. So how do you define fundamentals for digital assets? And how do you really think about, you know, what, what makes something a, you know, a kind of a sound investment opportunity in the long run and something that should accrue value? Yeah, I mean, I think in the long run, it's really around what is the service that this chain provides or, or this you know, crypto thing provides and, you know, how much are people willing to pay for that? And then, you know, you could really do some kind of discounted cash flow uh, analysis. And I think that is the right way to do it for at least a lot of the things. Of course, there are other types of assets, you know, I don't know, Zcash, Monero, Bitcoin type thing, where maybe they're like monetary asset that you can't value that way. But I think for a lot of things, it really is around, what are the kind of protocol revenues that can be created? And I think you have this side note token terminal that uh, provides some of these uh, metrics in a nice way. And I think that's a good way of looking at like, you know, what are the fun what are the values? Is it, is it a good price or not? Of course, revenues are very different, different from fees actually accruing to the token holders though, right? I mean, there, there are plenty of tokens that have significant revenue like Uniswap where currently, you know, the, the, 
token holders aren't yet accruing any value from from the underlying assets. So, you know, how, how yeah. do you... Okay, yeah, you, you do have... Yeah, you have to look a little bit at the nuance, right? I guess some some things you have to consider. Okay, in the Uniswap case, of course, if it all goes to the liquidity providers, not to uni holders, then yeah, that's not really revenues that in the future you could just divert to uni holders because then the liquidity would go somewhere else. So like, yeah, that that's definitely a complexity you have to take into account. Uh, and and that, of course, it's earliest stage, like as a venture investor, right? You don't really know... I mean, you, you guys are investing early, like seed stage, if correct me if I'm wrong, in an earlier stage. You guys don't really know what the revenue that will be accrued in the future is, right? And so do you, do you spend a lot of time looking at the actual token economic model or do you more look at, hey, do I believe this thing is going to be widely adopted? Yeah, I would say more the latter, right? More like, do, do we think this use case makes sense? Is the team strong? The technology makes strong? Like, is there... I mean, I think you can still look at, like, the, the underlying... Is there like a sound business model? I mean, let's take Lido as an example. In the Lido case, there is a very clear business model, right? Because there's ETH that's being staked uh, through Lido. ETH generating rewards. Of the rewards, 10%, you know, 90% go to the, uh, the stakers. 10% go to the DAO. Of those 10%, you know, half of them go to node operators like course one and some others, and the other half go into this DAO treasury, right? So in, in essence, you can think of this 5% that goes into the DAO treasury, you know, that's kind of like the revenues of the DAO and you have like, L, and you can look at LDO and you can sort of look at like, okay, what is the market cap of LDO relative to that, that revenue stream going in there? And of course, there's other expenses they have because there's a team they need to pay. And well, you, you also know, presumably different. have to be concerned about, you know, the ability to unstake ETH at some later date as well and how that impacts future revenue. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And of course, there's all kinds of risk, right? Maybe in the future, some other protocol will become much bigger. And, you know, there, there is a lot of uncertainty for sure. But I do think, you know, if you, if you look at where we are today, at least you can do some of these valuations and you can you can start to approach it for like a lot of protocols, which is like far from where we were like a few years ago, right? In like 2018, there was really nothing that you could value in this way. And so I have infinitely more questions, but I'll, I'll leave you with one final question, which is, you know, we're recording on Jan 4. It might take a few days or weeks for this to come out, but what is the most critical thing to look out for in crypto in 2023? What are you, what are you, what are you watching for? It can be a positive impetus. It can be a negative impetus for the market. I mean, we are really, I, I guess there's different things, but like, we are just focused on, you know, doing what we're doing better, you know, working with institutional clients to help them get onboard onto staking, integrating with them, providing better, you know, improving our products to make sure they serve their needs better onboarding new chains, you know, we're doing all of those things. And it's kind of like, regardless of the market, I think when you look at the market, of course, the market is tremendously important what's going to happen there. And I, I do think that the macroeconomic environment is just like super important there and like a huge factor. So, you know, what's going to happen with inflation and with interest rates, I would guess that the bullish scenario is something that the economy slows down, inflation goes down, you know, uh, they're going to kind of loosen the monetary things again. Maybe the Ukraine war gets resolved and then the markets are going to do better again. Uh, I would say that's, that's sort of like the, the hopeful scenario that that would lead to recovery. I guess the other thing that I would say the other thing to look out for is what are we seeing in terms of actual adoption? You know, like use cases that are just like good and people normal people start using it more. And, and uh, I think we still have not seen that, right? To the point where, I mean, we saw the bid with NFTs, but, you know. Well, one question I, I wanted to ask you earlier yeah. is, you know, you spoke so much about making it easy for devs to build on Cosmos, but how do we make it easy for consumers to onboard, right? So I, I totally I totally agree with you on that point, right? Is, is on on finding that use case and making it easy for people to actually interact with it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I really appreciate the time. This is awesome. I, I have so many other questions I could ask, but 
I'll let people reach out themselves and ask questions. So where can people find out more about Chorus One? You mentioned your research a bunch of times, so I'd love to point people to your research specifically. Uh, where can people kind of follow you and, and, and find that information? Yeah, so they should just go to our website. So that's chorus.one. I'm sure you can put a link in there. So you can find a lot of things there. You can find our, we produce also a quarterly research report around staking with a lot of like data and research reports. So you could you could check that out or you can find a lot of things on our blog. Uh, if you're interested in terms of, you know, staking with us or like, you know, want some sort of support for like, I don't know, institutional or like, then uh, you can also uh, reach out there through the contact form and, you know, we'll, we'll get in touch and we can set up a call and try to help you navigate the exciting world of staking. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brian.